It's just God orchestrating and putting people in your life at a certain time and, you know, trying to follow through with those opportunities that are undeniable. And it's His purpose. Mm -hmm. We don't realize it. And I don't know how else to say it, but we're so thankful. Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. During a season when love is celebrated with flowers, candy, and romantic cards, it's easy to forget that love has many facets. There's love that sticks around when it feels like there's not much to celebrate. There's love that forgives in the face of disappointments and dishonesty. And there's love that lives up to the promise that God, who Himself is love, made to us, that no matter what, He will never leave us or forsake us. Our guests this week are two couples who have walked together through joyous and difficult seasons, only to find their love had the capacity to carry them through it all. We're talking to country singers Linda Davis and Lang Scott, and one-time fugitive Bobby Love and his wife Cheryl. We'll start with Linda and Lang's story. So I'm Linda Davis. I'm a mama. I'm a wife. 37 years. Mm. Uh, grandmama. That's one of my favorite jobs. And I happen to sing and write music and record, and we get to go all around the world and sing to folks. I moved to Nashville when I was just 19, met Lang shortly thereafter, and uh, the rest is sweet history. And I'm Lang Scott. I'm husband and father of uh, 35 years for our daughter and 21 years for our daughter. From South Carolina, originally moved here to pursue a singing career and just been in the music business for, since I've been here since 1982. So I'm the baby of three kids and mom and daddy, mama stayed home and looked after the house and us kids and daddy was a welder during my childhood. And we were raised in a small little community in East Texas, not far from my grandparents and aunts and uncles, went to church in a sweet little missionary Baptist church. Most everybody was kin. So I went to high school there in Carthage, which is Panola County, about um, 15, 17 miles from where my house was. So I was kind of stuck out in the country as a kid, but I still got involved with all the things that I could, and my music was what I loved. I discovered that I loved to sing from the time I was little. So that was my escape. That was my dream and passion, and not a whole lot about that's changed. I just knew I wanted to sing on the Grand Ole Opry. So I guess I knew I wanted to do this for a career before I knew what the word career meant. When I grew up, I just played a lot of sports growing up, you know, loved, loved to play baseball. And then when I was uh, 12 years old, my family moved down close to Charleston and I got into a real small school there and, and played every sport. That was what took up all of my time, kept me out of a lot of trouble, I'm sure. And I'd started playing guitar when I was uh, seven years old but really picked it up again when I was about 15. And, and that's where I, over the course of the next two years from 15 to 17 years old, I, I just soaked it all in. I would, I would literally play the guitar six, seven hours a day. And um, went to college for a couple of years and then ended up entering a statewide contest, a talent contest and won that and met a guy that was judging and who took me up under his wing and brought me to Nashville. And that's, that's how I got here. 
the gentleman that you know that was a judge that was responsible for me coming up here he did a recording session and so i went in and they paired me with this uh, young lady by the name of stephanie she was from texas and so we went in and recorded three songs together and it just didn't our voices didn't blend right and so they said well lang over here we're gonna we're gonna produce you as a single artist and then so they brought in another guy and his name was skip and then skip and stephanie that didn't work out either so then stephanie left and went back to texas they had known of Linda because she had come when she was a few years younger, when she was 15 and then 17, I think. And so they remembered her and called her in. And so she and Skip ended up singing on the original tracks that I put down. And so after she did that, she ended up working at the studio where I was going in and writing and, and doing demos. And I'm, I think I met you the first or second day you the were first there. Day. So. And uh, we didn't start dating right away. It was a few months before we started dating, I think, of Labor Day. It was Labor Day weekend. Yeah, and so we started dating then. So that's how we met. It was really, you know, fate. You talk about, you know, God putting, orchestrating things and, and paths that you go down because, I mean, how can you put that East Texas girl meets, you know, low country South Carolina and she sings on the original tracks that me and another girl from Texas had put down. We have uh, developed relationships through the years. It's That is what is so fun right now mm -hmm. in this time of our life because you can't put a price on friendships and relationships. And we're blessed. So after Lang and I got married and, and I was doing demos. My friend Bob had shown an interest and kind of plugged me into to the songwriter world and publishing world. A lot of the songs that some of the writers were asking me to sing, they then pitched to Reba because we have similar parts of our voices, how it sounds to people. And eventually, I get calls to come do more, and one of them would say, well, Reba sure likes your voice. She heard the cassette with your song, and, or your voice on our song, and she liked it. And then the next few weeks, it's like, well, she's got it on hold. She's gonna record it. So that made me look good. It made um, people want to use me for their demos in case, okay. If not Reba, maybe somebody else. So that helped my business, and I was just blown away because I loved Reba. I didn't know her, but I loved her, and I loved the fact that she was aware of my voice. And we didn't know that that's how our careers would unfold. And, and we didn't plan any of it. And so we went very quickly from 75 shows on average a year for that first year to about 110 shows next year about 120 shows and so what turned out to be what was going to be about 40 to 50 percent gone turned out to be more than that and so it started becoming the the more success she had the harder that was to try to balance and and to feel good about as a dad hillary was getting up to an age by then that she was into some sports and some things at school and and so as i was creeping up to 40 years old I knew that I needed to start making an adjustment to, to transition out. And uh, of course, they were very gracious about that as well. And, and Linda stayed on for another year or two years, uh, one or two years after I left in 99. And so that was always 
And the hard part about yeah. that was... Leaving Hillary. Leaving Hillary. You know, who at that time was five years old. Yeah. Some of the vivid memories of us leaving to get on the bus and Hillary being in tears. Mm. I mean, it's just like, it wasn't like we were going off to war, you know, but it was, it, it, it was just rip your heart out, you know. That is a hard part for any, any parent. In our case, both of us were leaving. Mm -hmm. That was, we prayed through it. We talked to his parents. We felt like that was at the time the right thing to do and for our future. And really tried to stay keenly aware and observing Hillary during that time too, to make sure that she was well adjusted. And, you know, and I'm sure we made tons of mistakes, you know, through some of those times, but our intent was good and we still as linda said we prayed about it and we always felt like we were doing what we were supposed to be doing mm -hmm. at the time i felt like for hillary anything music business meant her parents were gone and and it wasn't something that she ever really showed any interest in she had a great voice Hillary could always sing and hold her part while we grabbed harmonies and around mm -hmm. her. That started early, and so music, we were always singing around here, playing songs and taking her every time we could. But then when she got to be 16, we yeah. were a part of a Christmas show out at Opryland Hotel, and for three years, and, and Riley was born then, she surprised us. There's 14 years between our girls. So talk about uh, transition, and <laughs> God just thought that was so funny, I mm -hmm. guess, to surprise us that way, and we're glad He did. But we had this opportunity to do a Christmas show, and so it was the whole family. And at that point, I think Hillary really saw and felt the camaraderie and she got out there and she held her own with the, her songs and her moves and her, you know, wardrobe changes. And I mean, it was a production. And that's when I think the mm -hmm. bug bit yeah, her. Yeah, the bug bit her. And it was also the time and we watched it and it was just like kind of handing a torch over. I mean, we've been blessed. I'm not gonna sit here and say that we didn't have some hard times and weeks, you know, through there but they weren't hard times from the dynamic within our house. They were just hard to juggle. And tired. some of the tired, tired, some of the disappointments that happened that you thought was gonna happen, but we can't look back at anything and mm -hmm. say that we have any regrets mm -hmm. or that we have any, not even remorse about the things that we've done. We've been blessed. God has blessed our, our life and our family with, you know, with wonderful, opportunities and ex experiences, you know, that we share with people now that we yes. go out and we talk about it. When you say blessed, that's in the past tense. He's still blessing us now. Absolutely. And I know he's got all kind of stuff in store for us. And mm -hmm. that's what I, how fun. Mm -hmm. And what's so beautiful, just like music brought us together. And then it transcends that into, uh, you know, falling in love with each other and, and so much deeper. Hillary met her husband, and he is a drummer, and so music brought their paths mm -hmm. together, and now they have toured the world together and have us three grandbabies. But, I mean, that's something that I think is so natural mm -hmm. for us, 
because we can we love singing together and and listening to music together writing or any facet of it the cd love remains hillary scott and the scott family i mean talk about one of those blessings that you never can dream about because it's just it's too crazy to even think that mama and daddy and two daughters would make a record together I guess the inspiration mm -hmm. for the project was Lang's daddy was diagnosed with cancer and had five months until he passed on mm -hmm. 11, 11, 11. We had the privilege to walk through that with him, you know, that whole treatment, and he was able to get, get into remission. So, and then I, through that time period, I watched my father, who was uneasy at first. He just found his peace with God, and, and it, was, it was an amazing experience to go through. I was reading uh, Paul's chapter of faith. I think it's Hebrews. And I was reading along with a Matthew Henry commentary with that. And Jacob was at his deathbed, and he's bringing all of his sons in individually. And there was a, just a thing that Matthew Henry wrote that, he said, God will give his children living comforts in dying moments. And when he does that, it's our responsibility to go out and tell our brothers and sisters, and you tell them of these experiences that happen in someone's dying moments to encourage them and to give them confidence of life eternal. And there are several things that I could tell you that happened with dad in the hospital room, you know, towards the end of his earthly life. Then uh, I felt that conviction and said, we're gonna do this. I can't say that I've ever felt a conviction like that ever before or since that was that strong that if I did not obey, that I was being disobedient, scared me. It was that strong of a conviction. And so I approached Hillary. I said, hey, what if we go down? I've got a little project studio downstairs and, and record some of the hymns. And the feedback that we've gotten back from people has confirmed that. And we give all the glory to God. We are born one fine day, children of God on our way. Mama smiles and daddy cries a miracle before they rise they protect us till that it has made an impact on people's lives, that music, and how, how reassuring that is that music has been our life. It's been our life together, and now for our children as well, that God used what we have done in our life to make an impact in a positive way and in a spiritual way to others. I feel like every day I feel the Lord around me, protecting me. I pray for that. I pray for that for my children. I pray for that for my husband, our family and friends. I don't know that I can tell you when I haven't felt the power 
of prayer and the power of the Lord in my life. He's there. It's up to us to ask Him to be a part of our life. And even if we're saved and it's like, okay, I'm going to heaven. Well, okay, but what about right now when you're not in heaven yet? Why can't we make the best of it? And the only way the best of life is going to be if He's included and to ask His guidance and His will in our life. So I can't tell you how many Jesus Calling books I have given as Christmas gifts or birthday presents, stocking stuffers. She um, also takes her phone and snapshots the day sometimes and sends that out. I mean, I yeah, mean, so. I have, uh, that's been a part of, of my devotional for years. And I'm just so thankful. It, it's not the Bible. We have our Bible, but that is just a, a piece to uh, add to the Bible because how it is expressed and how day-to-day application. And every time, I don't always just go to what today is. I just open it up and it might be February and I'm looking at October, but it's what I need. That is like how the Bible is for me. When I open the Bible and I read something, it just applies to Linda that day. And the Jesus Calling devotionals, that, that is a gift. You know, as we get older, it's way easier to look back and see where God placed people in your lives. I, I refer to those as critical crossroads in your life, you know, and, and you can look back after a few decades and you can identify those pretty easily. So for me, I, I met the gentleman that was the judge at that talent contest. And had I not met him, I would not have come to Nashville. I would have not have met my wife, my soulmate through life. And, you know, we would not have had our children and there wouldn't be a Lady A, you know, there wouldn't be a, a Riley Jean that is, you know, still going to go out and set the world on fire, yes, who is our youngest daughter. So, yeah, to look back and be able to identify and you know that it's God orchestrating your life and you're young and naive and, you know, at the age that I was when I moved here and I think I can speak for you when you moved up here. I can't really say that I felt a conviction to do that. You know, certainly not from a spiritual standpoint of it. I felt a desire to go do it, but I have to just confess that that, that desire I know was mine, you know, to follow my dream at that time. But God, I think, you know, He, he blesses that. And I was given a gift and, and a talent to go and pursue it. And so it was just like, you know, walking down that path and then he just orchestrates and puts people that you meet and as Linda said a while ago it is about those relationships and you wake up years later and you realize wow had that not happened at that point in time with this person this would not have happened and it's happened over and over again to learn more about Linda and Lang please follow them on social media and be sure to check out our Peace and Uncertain Times video on YouTube with their daughter, Lady A's Hillary Scott, over on the Jesus Calling YouTube channel. Stay tuned to Bobby and Cheryl Love Story after a brief message. During times of transition and unknown next steps, it's more important than ever to cling to the promises of God and to tune your ear to what Jesus has to say. 
Jesus Calling for Graduates is an encouraging compilation of 150 devotions from Sarah Young's brand. Grads will find topics such as discerning God's will, self-worth, trust, support, and much more. Jesus Calling for Graduates is perfect for both high school and college graduates as they embark on the next chapter. Look for our special custom edition of Jesus Calling for Graduates, available exclusively at faithgateway.com. Many of us want to develop a deeper prayer life. In this new 365-day devotional, Jesus Listens, Sarah Young offers daily prayers based on Scripture that will help you experience how intentional prayer can connect you to God and change your heart. Learn more about Jesus Listens and download a free sample at jesuscalling.com slash jesuslistens. When Bobby Love met his wife, Cheryl, it seemed like the timing was right for them both to find love in their lives. But little did Cheryl know that Bobby was living with a big secret, one that would reveal itself after many years of marriage, children, and maybe even Bobby's notion that perhaps he had outrun that secret. But as secrets do, this one came back to haunt him and almost ripped his and Cheryl's world apart in a way that they might not ever be able to put it back together. And love would be the only thing that would help them be able to restore what had been broken. I'm Bobby Love. I grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina, and uh, Washington, D.C. I'm Cheryl Love, and I am Bobby Love's wife. I grew up in Brooklyn, East New York, and I had four brothers and one sister. My mom died when I was like nine years old, but the memories that I have of my mom and dad was always, you know, loving and uh, we would dance all the time, sing and have talent shows and things like that. We would play Disney music and all different kinds of gospel music. And it was always something like that. We would be playing church, we would play different things, and we, <laughs> we always went to church. So that's how I grew up. I had some issues when I was growing up in the Jim Crow South. You know, uh, my position on that was, you know, everybody has their own thing to do. And uh, because I'm this color and that shouldn't hold me back, but that was part of it as I grew up. I went to a segregated school that was desegregated and uh, little things started, you know, fights and stuff like that. Yeah, my experience was different because of location and timing. I was born in the 60s, 63. Bobby was born in the 50s. And so it was quite different. And when I met Bobby and was talking with him about different things, he would be explaining to me some of the experiences that he had went through when he was growing up. And one of them, he said to me that, you know, there was a colored fountain and there was the fountain for colored people and a fountain for white folks. And that he said, I wanted to see if the water tastes different. And I went and I drunk from the other fountain. <laughs> He was curious, you know. He said, but right away, you know, the fellas, it was, you can't drink from that fountain. You're not supposed to drink from the fountain. And, like, the boy hit him and said, you can't drink from this fountain. And so it was nothing like that. I didn't have that type of encounters. I got busted three times for different offenses. And um, my probation officer told my mother it would be better if I was sent away because 
I didn't have a father at that time. My father died when I was nine also. I came from a family of eight. And um, my older brothers, so they were doing, you know, living their lives. Some of them had started to have their own families. And uh, they told my mother that I was going to be sent away because they kind of felt my mother couldn't control me like she should have. My mother, well, she would pray that I would straighten up and do the right things. And she prayed that um, God wouldn't take me from at an early age that he would just um, be there for me. So I was sent to this place called Marson Training School. And um, that was my life of being in a, incarcerated at that time. Well, I went to DC to live with my brother. We drove all night, we went to parties and things like that. It was three other guys with me, so it was four of us. But when I got home late that night, maybe about three or four o'clock that morning, my brother got up and he went was going to work. That's when he uh, discovered that his car wasn't in the place where he had parked it. Plus, I didn't put any gas in the car. So <laughs> my brother told me and his, him and his wife talked about it and they said I had to go because they had three children that was younger than me and they were saying that... Um, they don't want them to have to, um, you know, endure what I'm doing and uh, find out about the things I'm doing that they would want to do that same kind of stuff. So uh, I moved. I moved over with my sister. I lived with her for a year or so. I also got in trouble over there. I was put on probation. And then I would uh, have some friends and they was doing certain things and I joined that pack of guys and we started robbing. In uh, 1969, I got shot. It was inauguration day for Richard Nixon and uh, we robbed a, a drugstore. And as I came out the drugstore in between cars, this policeman saw that I had a gun. So I turned one way and he shot me from behind. I was very lucky to be shot where I was shot. So I ended up in the hospital, they operated on me and I was just crazy at that time. I didn't care about nothing, I was very indeed. I had an armed robbery case at that time, but my age allowed me to go to a youth facility. After 13 months, I was released into a halfway house and uh, from the halfway house, I was able to get out of the halfway house when I, once I got a job. So I got a job and I got a room to live in this uh, man's house. And I would um, start doing the same thing again. We started robbing again. This time we went to North Carolina to uh, commit robberies. And eventually I got busted in North Carolina and I was sentenced to 25 to 30 years for armed robbery down there. In the beginning, it was it was maximum security. So in my case, they told me that I was going to be staying at Central Prison. I was going to work in the hospital. So now I moved from that job, and the next job was going out there working on the road. So as it got colder outside, they gave me a coat. 
And so by having this coat that they had issued me, I put it in a bag and put it under my arm and I walked in with it and I walked out with it. So that told me that I could probably get my own personal clothes, which I already had, and take my clothes and walk out the gate. And when I get on that bus, I was going to um, jump out the back door as he was you know, getting into traffic and running the woods and change my clothes and be out of there. So that's what I eventually did in November as it got colder outside. I was walking the streets of New York. I remember between Christmas and New Year's, I got a bus back down to New York. And uh, I went into uh, the Salvation Army. I mean, the guy welcomed me into the Salvation Army. He said, come on in. So I came in, I stayed the night, they fed me and everything like that. So these two brothers, they were the Garino brothers. So I worked for them for maybe a few months, well, maybe two months. I worked for them just making sandwiches and stuff like that. I was getting paid $150 off the books. And I was satisfied with that. And then I would um, start at Hertz as a shipping clerk. Bobby was working there. And when I got there, he would always be singing and everything. And I'm like, like to everybody, who is that? This new guy here. He's so loud, you know. We would talk at um, lunchtime. We would have um, sit at the table. And we just started to get to know each other better. And the main thing was that he made me laugh and smile, you know? Cheryl was everything I had seen and wanted in a woman, and we got married. I would ask Bobby at times, I said, are you happy here? Are you? Because he was shut down a lot of times. He wouldn't, you know, we'd get isolated and, you know, we would be talking about something and then he just like shut down. I'm like, what's wrong? You know, and he he would just shut down. He wouldn't talk about it. But I just always felt he was keeping something from me. I even asked him, do you have another family? No, Cheryl, no. If I had somebody, I wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. It was my intuition. And then I would have this recurring dream of this rope coming from his mouth, a thick rope. And I'm like, this man has something to tell me. I know it. I know it. See, he's keeping something from me. First five or six months of being with her and stuff like that, she had this honest way of about herself. And I know the first thing she would have said, no, you got to go turn yourself in. No way, no way. And uh, so I just never really, I would have went back to jail for real right then and there. We're getting ready for work. I go in the kitchen to make my hot cup of tea. And my son had just left. Jordan had just left. And we had prayed. And, you know, because I always pray with our children. We always pray with them before they leave. And so he had left. And after a few minutes later, as I'm sitting down and sipping my tea, there was a loud knock at the door. I mean, a loud knock. And I'm like, who is that this time of morning? So both of us said at the same time, who is it? And they didn't say who they were, but they said, we want 2A. I'm like, this is 2A. And so I go to the door and open the door. And when I opened that door, to my surprise, the FBI, NYPD, guns drawn, stand back, ma'am. 
You don't know who this man is. And I'm like, what? Stand back. And they like, they didn't push me, but moved me back, like towards the, back towards the kitchen there. And Bobby was right there. And so I saw these guys get behind him, make a semicircle around him. And they were talking to him. Bobby's not looking at me. And I'm like, what's going on? I didn't know what was happening. They asked me right my name. I said, Bobby Love. And they said, no, your real name. And I said, Walter Curtis Miller. They was telling me that they was going to arrest me for a fugitive warrant from North Carolina. And it was devastating. Man, my whole world just crumbled right then and there, you know? My two kids, they had come up front. They was in the next room, and they were crying. And uh, I just didn't know what was going on. I just, you know. I didn't know anything. They were holding me back. They wouldn't let me do anything. I was just standing there like, what's going on? So I was like kind of yelling like, Bobby, what's happening? What's going I said, did you kill someone? What's going on? And he just said, no, Charles, nothing like that. And he said, this happened before you and me, before the kids. So they took him out and everything and um, they let him say goodbye to the kids and they told him that they were going to um, put the handcuffs on him on the outside there, on the outside of the door. So that's what they did. And so it was really a mess. We were all crying, um, really didn't know what was going on. I just know they were taking him in, that kind of thing. It was really, it was a mess. It was just a mess. And I knew somewhere in my deepest of hearts that this is what I had been feeling for so many years, that he was keeping something from me. I just didn't know what it was. I got a phone call from the lawyer and she said to me, Mrs. Love, you know, hi and you know, things like that. And so she said to me, your husband, when you go and see Bobby, you're gonna ask for Walter Curtis Miller. And I said, oh, is that the name of the facility? And I tell you, it got so quiet, it was, you could hear crickets. And she said, no, ma'am. She said, that's, you're just gonna ask for Walter Curtis Miller. When I hung up that phone, right then and there, I said oh, to my daughter, when my daughter Jessica was sitting, and I said it just like that. I said, oh, Jesse. I said, that's your father's real name, Walter Curtis Miller. And it seemed like it just came to me. The puzzle started coming together. And something about how that officer said to me, stand back, you don't know who this man is. I mean, had me thinking, what are you talking? I don't know who he is. This is my husband. But it just came to me just like that. And I said, oh my God, that's your dad's real name. So that next day we went out to Rikers Island and we were the like the last visit and we made it for the visit to see him. When I went and spoke to Bobby, he started to, he told me everything, you know, and then that's when I knew, oh, that's why this and that's why that and I could put pieces together with things, you know. And I tried to explain to her that if she was going to divorce me, I have no problem with and reasoning for her to do this, you know. So, but she said, no, she wasn't here to do that. And I had to really come to the truth, the recollection of 
this man who I've been with for all these years, he has deceived me and I had to outweigh the good, the bad, and the ugly. I had to really think about it all. I mean, really sit down and think, what am I going to do, you know? But my trust in God, we had a faith in God, and we talked about that, that God has always been with us. He had never left us. And, you know, I just felt like I had to forgive him. We talked about it and we said in order to move forward, to move on, we want to be together. You're going to have to, you got to let it go. You have to let it go. And if you have to, if it's starting all over again, that's what we got to do. And we decided that's what we wanted to do. Once I got to uh, Rackers Island and started to uh, see things, my lawyer, she was very helpful, very helpful. She said, I've contacted the prison project in North Carolina, so we can set ourselves up for you going down there and uh, just have some things that are ready to try to get done and either get you a pardon, which I didn't really think that I would get as far as um, you know, the prison sentence, the last nine years that were still there, or she said that you can um, try to get an early parole. She said they was trying to get me a parole date, and I found out the parole date was scheduled for October. This was in July. And uh, sure enough, October the 27th, I had the parole hearing. I couldn't go to the hearing, but my wife went, my daughter went, my father-in-law went, and my sister. And before Thanksgiving, I found out that I made parole. I wasn't able to get home until January, but it was all worth it. It was all worth it. I said, God, you are awesome. You are just awesome. And he just really turned it all around. He just turned this whole thing around. Right now, I see a different Bobby. <laughs> His free, authentic self. He doesn't have to hold anything back. We talk things out. We still do have our ups and downs. We have our arguments. <laughs> That's what marriage is. However, we're able to talk things out. There's a song by James Cleveland that my husband sings every single day and morning he gets up and plays it. Peace be still. Master, uh -oh. <laughs> the tempest is raising. All the fellows are tossing high. <laughs> You know that there will be things, ups and downs, but we go through it together. We go through it with God. You can read Bobby and Cheryl's story in their book, The Redemption of Bobby Love, available now wherever books are sold. If you'd like to hear more stories about love that can withstand the storms of life, check out our interview with Danielle Koch. Next time on the Jesus Calling Podcast, we hear from John Siebling and Wayne Francis, pastors who lead racially diverse churches in Memphis and New York, respectively. They've built a deep friendship over the years and navigated race issues in their church together. In light of conversation happening in the wider culture right now, they share some practical advice on how to have tough conversations about race in the church. The Bible says there was people from every nation under heaven that were there in Jerusalem when the church was born. The idea of diversity 
and that diversity piece is in our DNA as right. believers. So there's a longing for it, even though we're more comfortable maybe with people who look like us and in a homogeneous setting, I think the diversity is, I mean, it's, I think it's a call. We like to say it this way, that um, diversity isn't reserved for heaven, it's a requirement on earth. Right. And that's what we're trying to motivate leaders and lay people to create context for that to happen within the local church. Want to hear more inspirational stories of people who have been changed by a closer walk with God? Then subscribe today to the Jesus Calling Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please be sure to leave a review, which helps us reach and inspire others with these stories. Plus, if you like seeing our guests as well as hearing them, you can find video interviews available on our YouTube channel at youtube.com Jesus Calling Book on Facebook and on the Jesus Calling Instagram page.